Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. For Justin Thomas. He is the current president of Calvary Chapel Bible College, a school that I and Pastor Nate and several of us in here have uh, graduated from. And one of the reasons why he is perfect for this is that he embodies the Jesus-famous mission of Calvary Monterey. Pastor Justin's journey includes serving as the former pastor of Calvary the Hill in Seattle. And his unique experiences and vision for engaging the world, loving our neighbors, and inviting them into God's kingdom make him the perfect speaker to address this year's Missions Sunday theme, Proximity. So would you please put your hands together and welcome Pastor Justin Thomas. Good morning, Calvary. Uh, It is my joy and my honor to be with you all this morning. As I'm sure you're aware, as residents of Monterey, you don't need very many excuses to say yes to an invitation to come here. Um, But on top of that, I've known Pastor Nate uh, for a handful of years. uh, And uh, on top of that, uh, I get to be here to represent Calvary Chapel Bible College. And like the old hair club for men commercials, I'm not just the president, I'm also an alum. Uh, I was a student there, as was Nate and Manny. One of our students is teaching your youth group this morning. Uh, Brenton Powers was just on campus with our students last week. His daughter's attending here. I know that you know this school. Um, and so uh, I do want to go above and beyond that, though, and, and tell you a little bit about my personal story, how I found myself at CCBC and how I found myself returning. Um, I got saved between my junior and senior year of high school. And being on the cusp of adulthood had the sudden epiphany that the worldview, the ideology, the theology that underlies a Christian life, I wasn't familiar enough with to live out as an adult. And so I went to Bible college to get my head on straight. Um, And truth be told, people come to CCBC for all sorts of reasons, spanning from I just got saved on Thursday and I didn't know what else to do, to my parents made me, to I think uh, God is calling me into ministry, and many more. But what you will find these students have in common, as I do myself, is whatever brought you to CCBC, you experience what we call the pivot, which means where you go next, you can trace the trajectory back to this school. This is a place where God meets our students, where he refines their callings and he prepares them for life. In fact, that's our heart. Our heart is to be a school that provides a biblical foundation for every calling. I don't know what the Lord has for you, but we believe that you need a solid foundation to pursue those things. And so that's why we exist. It's not just for traditional age, post-high school, college students. It's for anyone I know as well as anyone that in Calvary, many people find themselves in ministry not through some sort of education trajectory, but just that's where they ended up. Uh, And so we believe in supporting that by providing the education and the training to help you do what God has called you right where you are. And so towards that end, we offer uh, classes not just on campus, but also online. And so uh, this morning, I have the privilege to uh, speak to you on Mission Sunday, and the theme is proximity. And so if you would open your Bibles up to 1 Thessalonians, 
This is one of Paul's letters in the New Testament. It's helpful to know that all of the New Testament letters that begin with T are right next to each other. The Thessalonians, the Timothys, and Titus are all right there. And so if if you're in a Bible book that begins with T, just go back to the first one, which is our book this morning, 1 Thessalonians. Before we read the passage, would you just reflect with me on what the word proximity entails? It means to get near. It means to come close. It, it, it means horseshoes and hand grenades, right? Proximity is the idea that there's something about the mission of God that we've been called to enter into as a church that requires us to get close, which is another way of saying that the ministry that God has given us is inherently relational. It's best done face to face. So what I'd like to look at this morning is Paul writing to the church in Thessalonica. And as we read this passage, I want you to notice two things. One is evident from the passage. The other uh, is significant from a context that I'll give you. So here's, here's the first one. Here's what I want you to notice as we read this morning. I want you to pay attention to how personal and relational the language Paul uses to describe his time in Thessalonica. Now here's the context that I want you to understand. We know from Acts chapter 17 that Paul's entire time in the city of Thessalonica, the founding of this church that he's writing to now, was three weeks. Okay. With that in mind, would you just look with me, beginning in verse 7 of chapter 2, and we're going to read through verse 12 this morning. He finishes up his thought saying, Instead, we were like young children among you. And then he continues, Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and our hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are our witness, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and his glory. Would you join me in prayer? Father, just as Paul speaks of this church in chapter 1 and says, and we know you were a part of God's family because the Spirit worked powerfully and with great conviction among you, I pray that it would be the same for this church this morning, that my words would be coupled with your word and by the power of the Spirit would create soft hearts and open eyes and a desire to step into the calling that you have given us as a church. We pray, Lord, on this Mission Sunday that your will would be done in Monterey as it is in heaven. And we ask that you would show us our part to play as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Did you see what I was talking about? Did you see the language Paul uses? People he's known face-to-face for three weeks, 
And he begins by comparing himself to a nursing mom, and he ends by comparing himself to a father with his own children. And halfway along the way, he refers to them as what? As brothers and sisters. The approach that Paul took in the book of Thessalonica, or in the city of Thessalonica, is not just happenstance. He's not just saying what happened in Thessalonica was so sweet, it was like I found a new family. This is Paul's methodology. This is the way that he goes about being an apostle of Jesus Christ, being an itinerant missionary. And as you can see here, it is innately, it is inherently, it is, it is unavoidably personal. And again, that gets us to our theme this morning of proximity. Now, how does Paul come to this method? Why does he take this approach Why would he pursue such intimate relationships with strangers for the sake of the gospel? Well, I would suggest to you that the reason is very simple. It's because we have a God who comes near. It's built inherently into his character in the very beginning. Just after Adam and Eve make a choice against God to go their own way, how does God respond? Shouting from heaven? No, by walking in the garden to address them right where they are. When Israel has gone wayward and chosen not to believe God's promises and are now wandering the wilderness for 40 years in judgment. Where is God? In the pillar of fire, in the cloud of smoke, right there in the midst. In fact, that very difficult to understand book of Leviticus in your Old Testament. The whole purpose of that book is solving this problem. How can a holy God dwell in the midst of a sinful people? And and we could go on and on when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are suffering for their testimony before the king. And they find themselves in the fire. Who is there in the midst? One who looks like the son of God, it tells us in the book of Daniel. Over and over and over again, we see that God comes near. He enters in. That's the God we serve. And this is also true of God's primary expression, the gospel itself, Jesus Christ. And so if you would turn with me a few books over near the end of your Bibles to 1 John. John here is describing the gospel. In fact, this, I'm going to spoil it for you. Verse 3, he says, this is the message we proclaim. I have to say that because he, he opens up with a bunch of modifiers and he kind of buries the lead. But I want you to notice how he describes the message. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The word of life, the gospel message, he says, that one that I proclaim to you is what I have seen and what I've heard and even what I've handled. Because the means that God used to set a wrong world right, to deal with the sins of a rebellious humanity was to come near, to take on flesh, and as it says in the gospel of John chapter 1, to dwell among us. And it doesn't end there. Not only is our message about the God who came near, but the reason is 
uh, designed in these as well. So read beginning in, beginning in verse 2. The life appeared, we have seen it and we testify to it, and we proclaim to you, here's the mission, here's the missionary endeavor, we claim to you, uh, proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us, and then notice this, verse 3, we proclaim to you so uh, what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Why does John communicate this word of life? So that they may become part of the family. So that they may have fellowship with John and the other apostles. And he says, our fellowship is with the Father and with Jesus Christ. This idea of relationship is beginning, middle, end of the gospel. And so our method in proclaiming the gospel must be relational because the medium is the message. This is what proximity is about. And in our world that is extended and become global, but what we mean by global is not that you have relationships with people farther away, but that your voice carries farther. We need to be reminded of this distinction. As my professor in school likes to say about online education, even though he's my online teacher, he's just not very fond of it. He says, you can do online dating, but you can't make online babies. Or, for us this morning, I'd like to encourage you to realize that you can proclaim the gospel on social media, but you can't make disciples. That's what we mean when we say proximity. So let's go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And what I want to do is, is give you four aspects or facets or parts of Paul's ministry that all kind of double down on this idea of coming near. And the first one I want you to notice is right there in verse 7, and I'll give it to you up front. To be a missionary, to do the ministry, to proclaim the gospel, you need to be close enough to care. Read with me again, second uh, half of verse 7 there. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Now again, notice the image that Paul opens with is an image of nearness. In fact, we would call it an image of intimacy. He says, just as a mother with her nursing child. This is such an intimate act, it makes us uncomfortable when it's done in public. And that is how Paul identifies the way that he views his relationship with the people of Thessalonica. Now, notice more than that. Not only is it intimate, you know, it's, uh, what's the pregnancy, uh, the, the birthing term, kangaroo care? It's skin-to-skin contact, you know. Not only is it incredibly close, incredibly intimate, it's motherly, uh, but also think, think about the metaphor itself. What, what's so marvelous, what's so uh, staggering about nursing an infant? It's that the mother takes from her own life and gives life to the baby. It's, it's not just contact, it's life-giving contact. That's Paul's mindset for his ministry. And as he goes on, he says, he says, we loved you so dearly that it delighted not just to share the message of the gospel, but our very lives. 
Near enough to care means that you bridge the distance so much that you develop relationship. And I'll just put it really simply, ladies and gentlemen, you cannot make disciples unless you make relationships. That's, that's to start. But again, we have to recognize in the world that we live in, we have a broad human culture orientation towards distance. And the algorithms and the culture wars are only exacerbating this. And so I'd like to talk to you really quickly about pronouns and not those ones. I know I'm from Seattle, don't worry. I want to talk about the pronouns of ministry. You see, here's the thing. For, for this type of proximity that we're talking about, this only happens here. It can never happen there. For it to happen there, your there has to become here. Right? That's why you've sent out this young missionary couple to Thailand, because you know that if people in Thailand are going to know Jesus, somebody has to live in their midst. But this online world that we live in makes even our here there. Because maybe it's just the neighbor across the street, but you know from the little posted sign in their front yard that they're one of them. And that gets us to the pronouns. You can never, ever carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. It's impossible. Ministry always requires for us moving from the third-person pronoun, them, to the second-person pronoun, you. And, and just think about pronouns. There's me, you, and them. Do, do you see the distance there? Me, that's right here. You, that's face-to-face. Them is out there. Okay. And so what Paul says here is about you. He came to the Thessalonians. He got to know the Thessalonians. He ministered to them. And as he did so, it developed so much care that it actually led to a we. And that's where ministry actually really lives. In fact, when Paul says here that we gave you not just the gospel but our very lives, what does he mean? At bare minimum, he means that he came to live out his life with these people in the day-to-day. But I think it means more than that. It means suddenly the needs and concerns of this city are the needs and concerns of Paul. A helpful word for this, I think, is solidarity. Solidarity happens when the problems of the community become the problems of the church because it's our community. This is what it means to give not just the gospel, but our very lives. It means to take our resources, our concern, and apply them not just to our needs, but the needs of our neighborhood. Okay. I'll give you a great illustration of this, one of my favorites. Many of you know the name St. Patrick. St. Patrick was a Christian missionary to Ireland, but do you know the backstory? St. Patrick was a slave, a Briton from England who had been captured and enslaved as a child. And as he was living out his life as a slave on Ireland, he had a vision that he later came to believe came from God of a ship parked in a particular harbor miles and miles away from where he was enslaved. And he escaped and got on that ship and made his way back to England. And then he met Jesus. And God put it on his heart to return to Ireland. And he spent the rest of his life among the Irish people proclaiming Jesus. And functioning as kind of the pastor, the patron saint of Ireland. But I want to draw your attention to a letter he wrote 
to Carocious, a Roman general. Even his name sounds evil. Carocious and his armies had invaded Ireland, killed and captured Irish people, including Christians. And remember, this is Rome, like Roman Empire Rome, like Christian Rome, Rome. And so he writes this letter both to the army of Croatius as well as to a watching world. And there's just one word in it I want to draw your attention to. It doesn't seem intentional. It seems absent-minded. He says, we are unliked because we are Irish. Solidarity. Not thoughtful, not intentional. It's just, he says, effectively, you can't do this to us. That's solidarity. And when Paul says this, what he means is that he cares so much about the people he's been called to serve that he gives not just the gospel, but his very lives so that they might live. This is where ministry begins. And let me point out to you again that there is an intention in this. That it is fully possible, maybe more possible than it's ever been, to live in your neighborhood and not know your neighbors. To exist in a community and not be part of it. And there's a lot of reasons to feel validated or even out of necessity to pursue that route. And all of them begin with the language of them. but the only way mission work works is when there becomes here and they become you. And then as you do that, as you will discover, you becomes we. Now, I come from Capitol Hill, Seattle. Uh, I, I know that one of the places we experience this is with the LGBT community, but that was my home. That's what Capitol Hill is. If you ride on the light rail of Seattle, the marker, the icon for my light rail station is a pride flag. Our crosswalks are rainbows. That's my home. Here's the concern I often have about the church. That a lot of times when there's these culture war issues and we have a them in mind, it might as well be a unicorn. We can picture it. We'd know one if we saw one, but we've never actually met one. That's a problem to the gospel. It's an obstacle to the mission that we've been given. It's exacerbated, again, by all of these distance-bridging technologies that actually create a deeper divide between you and your neighbors. But if we're going to follow Paul's methodology that draws directly from the method that God used to save human beings through Jesus Christ, then we have to get close enough to care. And it goes further. Look with me at verse 9. Paul says, Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and our hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. Now, I don't really need to parse the Greek or give you the cultural context to understand what Paul says here. It's pretty simple. He's an itinerant missionary, and he also has to eat and have a place to sleep. And so while he's passing through Thessalonica for these three weeks, he's basically picking up a side job. He's pulling night hours so that during the day he can talk to people about Jesus. And again, this isn't just Paul's method in Thessalonica, but everywhere. 
Now, we have the advantage, and it's one that Paul encourages to support missionaries financially to make this not a need, but Paul opted out of that. And the reason is because in the ancient world, here comes the cultural context, the reason is because in the ancient world, there was itinerant preachers everywhere who would tell you their gospel for only $9.95. And Paul knew that it was very difficult to convey the free gift of the gospel and charge admission. And so he chose to work with his own hands because he recognized, and this is where it gets applicable to all of you, that nearness comes with a cost. Now, you know this intuitively because if you want the front row seats, you pay twice the price. You know, and I don't know how this works economically, but you all know it's true, that if you're going to buy at the farmer's market where it was grown just a few miles down the road, it's going to cost you more than the grocery store that flew it in from some other country. Proximity comes with cost. And I'm not saying here that you need to pick up an additional job to support the work of the kingdom, but I promise you that getting near comes with a cost. It always does. Here's probably the easy way for incredibly ambitious, busy Americans. You're going to have to stop doing some stuff. Your lives are already full. None of you are just sitting around twiddling your thumbs going, I have no idea what to do with my time. But if you're going to engage in the mission that God has given the church, you're going to have to create margin. You're going to have to make room for it. And that means you're going to have to say no to things, even good things, for a greater yes. That's the cost. And again, it's not going to work to say, yeah, there's a distance between people and Jesus. They need to pay the cost. We're right here. If they want to hear about Jesus, they can just show up in the seats. No, the way that this works is that we bear the cost. That we take it on. That we, as was seen in the announcements, move our lives to a foreign country. Or, maybe more applicable to most of you, Invite strangers into your home. You see, here's what hospitality is. Hospitality is when you, at your cost, make a stranger a friend. That's what hospitality is. You take the risk of opening your house to those you don't know. You reach into your larder and take your food and share it with those you don't know. You bear the cost to make a relationship. And what I'm telling you is that proximity always comes with a cost. Jesus knew this in terms of the cost of his reputation. If he was going to eat with sinners and tax collectors, he would be known as that guy who eats with sinners and tax collectors. There is always a cost. Listen, when we think about the prophets in the Old Testament, we think of them as being people of courage and boldness and power. But to be a prophet is a very vulnerable thing. Just ask Jeremiah at the bottom of his muddy pit. But more importantly... There's a vulnerability that comes with speaking for God in any context. And so remember that not only does Jeremiah suffer persecution, he also changes. This is what I mean. In Jeremiah chapter 1, God calls Jeremiah and says, I made you for this, I've called you for this. And he says, what have you called me to? He said, I want you to preach to people who will never listen to you. I want you to spend your whole life giving a message that everyone will reject. And Jeremiah says, any option number two? And God says, no. But what do we know Jeremiah is? The weeping prophet. 
How does somebody who doesn't want to carry the message begin to embody the message? That's the cost. And that's another cost you're going to have to recognize here. If you're going to enter into messy lives of those people who need Jesus, it's going to hurt. Because they're not always going to respond to the gospel, and not all of their choices come from a Christian worldview. And so even when you know where the road goes, if you choose to walk it with them, you will have to endure the pain of watching them walk it out. But again, this comes directly from the message we proclaim. Listen, the greatest aspect of the gospel is this. God has freely made salvation available. But just because it's free to you doesn't mean that it was costless, does it? Christ took on human flesh, endured the shame of the cross, took your sins and your punishment upon his shoulders so that he could freely say, be redeemed, be restored. Enter into this relationship with the God who made you for something more. When we bear the cost of living Christ-like lives in hard places, we make the gospel visible. We embody it. Like Paul, he says, I bear in my arms the stigmata. That's the Latin of that passage in Galatians. Those of you who have watched exorcism films know what I'm talking about. He says, I have scars like the ones... They put in Jesus' arms because I followed Jesus. And we could do this all day, right? As they treated the master, so they will treat the servant. There's so many of these aspects. I'm just trying to point out that it's by design. Paul understands that, and so he knows that nearness comes with a cost, and he joyfully pays it so that... I'll give you just one last illustration because it's short at hand. Paul says that he became all things to all men so that he might win some. You know what that means? It means he laid aside his preferences. It means he set aside the things that he would normally do, the things he normally identified with. It doesn't mean that he became a barbarian, a Scythian, a slave, or a free, but he did whatever he had to to remove the obstacles of clearly conveying the gospel to those people. That's proximity. That's nearness. Let's talk about the third one. And so you have to be close enough to care. You have to be close enough to bear the cost. And you also have to be close enough to model. Look again, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, picking up in verse 10. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. He says, you know the lives we lived. God hasn't given the world a telescope to observe Christian lives from a safe distance. In fact, and many of you in your workplace know this to be true, it seems like he's given them a microscope. And suddenly every choice, every act, every response to anger is right in the spotlight. Everybody's like, all right, this is where the Christian shows their true colors. This is where the Christian validates everything I've always thought Christians were. And again, 
this is actually a, a very important part in our world because your stereotypical neighbor has a stereotypical Christian in mind. And you know all the things that are said about us. You know all the things that are believed about us. And you know all the things that they can find Exhibit A of out on Fox News or elsewhere. And and let me tell you, from living in a neighborhood that did not want us, Capitol Hill did not have a sign outside that said, Christians, welcome here. In fact, right before I got there, about a year before we planted our church, they had literally run a church out of the neighborhood. They were meeting in a music hall, a venue, uh, and the, uh, a writer from our local liberal newspaper, The Stranger, swung by, interviewed the pastor, published the article, and the community demanded, based on that article, that the landlord kick him out of the venue, and he did so. And they never came back. But I will tell you this, that living as a neighbor in this neighborhood, it is so easy to poke down the straw man supposed quote-end-quote Christian all of my neighbors think are out there. You see, before we can convert people to Jesus in a world like ours, often we have to convert them to going, maybe I don't know who Jesus is. And to do that, we actually have to convert them to, maybe I don't know what Christianity is. And before that is, maybe I don't know what Christians are actually like. This is why model matters. And it matters for another reason. Because when we model the life of following Christ, we show people what the cost of following Jesus is like. They need to be able to look at our lives and say, okay, if I were to choose to follow Jesus, these are the changes I would have to make. And let me remind you, Jesus was big on count the cost. He was big on helping people to understand the implications and the changes required in their life if they were going to do this now. This gets us to another important point. For this to happen requires more than just you in isolation. It requires them to see the Christian community in action. Do you remember the verse that was read during announcements this morning out of the Gospel of John chapter 13? By this, the whole world will know you are my disciples by your love for what? For one another. How is the world supposed to see that? Well, there's really only two ways. Either you bring Christians into your neighborhood or you bring neighbors into your church. And I'm pro both. There needs to be an opportunity not just to see the cost of following Jesus, but the available support for following Jesus. And I'm going to speak on behalf of Pastor Nate, knowing he's not here this morning. I'm going to boldly tell you what he wants. He wants to make a commitment to you that if you bring your neighbors into this sanctuary, he will proclaim the gospel to them. He wants them here. Yes, that neighbor. He wants them here so that they can hear the gospel, but it's not just Pastor Nate that has a role to play in the impact of the gospel in their life. It's you as a community that have a role to play in that. And not just so that you provide hospitality and a welcome to them, but also so that you live with one another in a way that doesn't make sense. And here in the text, the word that Paul uses first, he says, you know that we lived holy lives, and we got to deal with a misunderstanding right here and right now. We have this weird idea in our head that holy means distant. Holy means I avoid. Holy means I stay away from, but... 
What about Isaiah chapter 6? Isaiah wakes up and finds himself in the very presence of God. And what are the angels proclaiming? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And Isaiah has an existential crisis. He goes, oh, I don't belong here. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. But how did he get in the temple? He's summoned by the holy God. And what happens next? That holy God sends an angel with a coal from the altar that cleanses those lips. Holiness is about distance. It's about dedication. And you know this to be true because when you're reading in the Old Testament, it talks about a holy spoon and a not holy spoon. What's the difference? That one's just for use in the temple. Don't use it for oatmeal. Holiness is about dedication, not distance. And so again, as they see that you live different lives as disciples of Jesus Christ, you also don't make sense. (laughs) When the church is at its best, it does what is incomprehensible because it does what is impossible. It gathers people from different stripes, ethnicities, and languages in the same room to worship God with one voice. It brings forgiveness where vengeance is justified. It takes care of need of not your family members. Jesus says everybody that does that, but your enemies. When the world goes, wait, what? Even the fact that the church suffers, God uses in this way, a holiness way. Many of you probably know in 1 Peter, he says that we should always be ready to give a defense for the hope that lies within us. We should always be ready for someone to go, why do you live the way you live? But do you know the context of that passage? You know what Peter has just said? He says, when you suffer for doing good, you should always be ready to give a hope for the defense. The pre-apologetic is the life that we live as Christians. And so we have to be close enough to model the impact, the power, the transformation that the gospel brings. Again, the support system that makes it available. If they're going to count the cost to follow Jesus, if they're going to say no for a greater yes, they need to recognize the community that they're entering into, the body of Christ that makes readily available to them the support they need to follow Jesus. And so, yeah. Bring your non-Christians neighbors here. Bring your fellow church members to the Super Bowl party. Draw them into your office, and when they come to have lunch with you, don't just slip out the door. Introduce them around. The mission of Christ is a community mission. It's something we do together. Let's look at the last one here. So we have to be close enough to care, close enough for the cost, We have to be close enough to model. And then finally, we need to be close enough to influence. Look at the last two verses here, verse 11 and 12. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and his glory. So he first compares himself to a mother, and now he returns to a father. But notice what he focuses on here. If you want to understand what he means when he says, like a father, you have to keep reading. And he says, like a father, we encouraged, we comforted, and we urged you. So I think a word that's helpful for us to get what Paul is talking about here is the word coach. You know, the dad who coaches the soccer team? 
This is what it looks like to urge and to comfort and to uh, encourage, to exhort. It talks here about an ongoing practice of support. Not so much leadership. This isn't the father as the rule maker. This is the father as the child maker. It's the formational role of the father that's in view here. But it's also showing an implication which I called influence. You need to get near enough to change stuff. That's what's happening here. Just like a father makes a difference in a child's life or his absence makes a difference in a child's life. The idea here of mission is that you get near enough to influence. And again, Paul may be using the language of fathers and coaching here, but this idea is not new. The first thing Jesus says about this new community he's creating in the Sermon on the Mount is you are to be light of the world and salt of the earth. Those are both metaphors of influence. Light takes darkness and brings the light. Salt takes corruption and stays and preserves it. But also notice that those are both metaphors of proximity. It will do you no good to turn on your kitchen light if you're trying to deal with the darkness in your upstairs closet. That's not how light works. In the same way, you can't treat your little bottle of salt like a talisman to warm, warn off decay, and as long as it's in your house, you're fine. You actually have to get it right up in there in the corruption. That's how salt works, by contact. Jesus is not saying, you are the light of the earth, so just go away. Listen, the stars that you see in the night sky are just as powerful and as bright as the sun you see every day. The only difference is their distance. Light and salt require presence to make a difference. But when they're present, you notice. I love what John Stott said. He said, if you're in a dark room, you never say, what's with all this darkness? You say, where is the light? And he says, and if your meat all goes bad, you don't say, where's all this corruption coming from? You go, where's the salt? Influence, transformation, change, this is part of the mission. And the way that it's done is not by lobbing truth over the battle lines. It's by getting in the trenches of people's lives and making a difference. This is what we mean when we talk about a ministry of nearness, when we talk about mission through proximity. Now, I want to give you some good news. The Great Commission, you know, this commandment that Jesus gives us to go into all the world and make disciples, the entire burden of that is not on your shoulders. You, as an individual, do not need to reach the whole world. But you do need to reach your world. You do need to step into your trenches. And so if I can give you just two practical pieces of advice this morning, here they are. First, I'm fully convinced if we're going to talk as American Christians in this day and age and in this time, the first thing God is calling you to do this Sunday is ask where you can make margin. What can you say no to for the greater yes of the kingdom? 
Where is the place where you can adjust? And not all of these require you to say no. Sometimes you say yes and an invitation. You make this thing that you love doing now a thing that you invite people into. There are lots of ways to go about this. And the second thing you need to do is you need to prayerfully discern your mission field. Again, it's not the whole world. And maybe, maybe even today on Mission Sunday, God wants to stir in your heart and say, that place over there, I want it to become your here. Maybe. But for most of us, he just wants you to be here, here. But are you familiar with the Dunbar number? It's a statistical idea that basically human beings are capable of valuable relationship with about 120 people. That means if you're going to do this, you can't just try and be everything to everyone. You can't just try and be best friends with the whole world. You are human. You're like a Lego block. You have just a a couple of pips on top, and maybe you have more pips than I do. my, My block is pretty small. But you still have a limited number of relationships that you can make disciples in. And so my second piece of advice is you need to prayerfully discern where that is. And it may actually be, it may even should be, those who live in closest proximity to you, the the capital N neighbors in your life. In fact, I'll give you a reason why you should start there. G.K. Chesterton says the genius of Jesus' command to love your neighbors is because we pick our friends, but God picks our neighbors. You see, what we're talking about is calling. What we're talking about is vocation. And when we use both of those words, we tend to overly limit what we mean. And so with calling, we talk about missionaries and pastors. And with vocation, we talk about our day job. But biblically, the idea of vocation or calling is the multifaceted reality of how you find yourself. You are a son or daughter, a husband or wife, a citizen of this nation and not that one, living in this zip code and not that one. All of those things that you didn't choose are your calling. They're the context that God has given you to live out your Christian life and purpose. Okay. Even male and female, and the world needs to hear this right now, are callings. They may be unchosen, but they are God-given. And they come with unique challenges and unique blessings, but they are a place where God can be glorified. And so again, I'd encourage you to consider your vocations, where God has placed you. The family, the city block, the position in government, whatever it is. And recognize that the mission field is not outside those places. You're already in it because that's how God works. And I will encourage you that if you do these two things, if you create margin and if you prayerfully ask God to discern where it is that he has placed you and who it is he's calling you, the people that you need to turn from them's or that guy at the end of the cubicles, to you, that that is the place the Lord will work. Because the we of ministry that I mentioned earlier, it goes much deeper than just we, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, who wrote this letter. It goes back to we, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You see, the mission you're being called into is not the mission of Jane or the mission of Joe. It's the mission of God. And he is already at work in our world. And he's inviting you not so he can clock out and leave. (laughs) 
He's inviting you into the work that he's doing so that you can participate. And so you can trust that the self-same spirit that was working in you when you first heard the gospel and responded will be working in your neighbors. You can trust that the same spirit that was making it hard for Paul to kick against the goads will be at work in your workplaces. You can trust that as you faithfully seek to follow Jesus as a Christian in the life that he's called you to, that there's a reason for that trust. But you're going to have to get near. Because that's where God is at work. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.